Well, I uh, did a discipleship journey with my son, and it was a six-year journey called The Primal Path, and I basically wanted to walk him from adolescence into manhood in a non-toxic, godly way. And the conclusion of this journey, we decided to do a pilgrimage together after he did a gap year where we walked 500 miles across Spain. We did the Camino de Santiago. And uh, it was the trip of a lifetime. And I trained for it, but I trained for it pretty ineffectively. (laughs) And Manhattan, for the most part, is pretty flat. So even though I had the backpack and I loaded it with weights and I was out early in the morning just hiking and hiking... Uh, the thing is basically a chunk of hills. And so I started, you start at a little town uh, right on the border of uh, France, and then you walk across uh, the Pyrenees Mountains. And uh, we're, we're, we're getting into it. There's adrenaline, there's joy, there's reconnection, there's processing. And uh, then I get a blister that basically, as one nurse says, requires a skin graft, which I solved by taping with duct tape for a, another three weeks. It was crazy. One night, we are having dinner at a little restaurant, and we're sitting with a couple, and we're just chatting and talking about, who are you? This is like a father-son trip. This is incredible. And uh, we're just talking about how, you know, it was exciting, and it was wonderful. And then they they said, oh, you you know where you are on the Camino? They said, this is our second time doing it. I said, great. How are you guys feeling? How are you doing physically? Great. I said, "You, you know what's coming up? Yes, the rest of the Camino. Ah, yes, the rest of the Camino. But there's a part of the Camino that is just heartbreaking. And I just want, you guys need to be prepared for this. There's a whole series of huge mountains, but then there's this section called the Mesita. And the Mesita is just the flat, hot, boring, passionless, agonizing plains of Spain. There's nothing out there. It's hot. There's signs like, make sure you have water. Now, in the grace and providence of God, when we decided to do it, it was the hottest heat wave in the recorded history of Spain. 110 degrees, 19 miles through a desert. Some pictures here give you sort of like a little vision of the glory and joy. The Mesita. When you get to the end of the Camino, you come into the main cathedral. It's really significant. You've hiked for between 30 and 40 days through this thing. And one of the questions you always ask people is, what did you do with the Mesita? So the truth is a lot of people know how hard it is. You've, you've done the hills. You've done the challenge. You're in these delightful little Spanish towns that are built for pilgrims to enjoy themselves. There's There's cafe con leche on tap. They drink beer for breakfast on the Camino. God is there in all of his glory. And then you get to a point where there's just nothing. And so a lot of people take a bus and they just skip the Mesita. It's like, what's the point of the hot, dry, boring, flat, arid plains? But when you're walking around and there's the big cathedral, and you're bumping into other people along the way, the question you ask is, what did you do with the Mesita? And then you know what sinks in? Mesita shame. It's like, oh, I, I bust the Mesita. <laughs> I taxied the Mesita. I skipped it. It was just too hard. It was just too hot. There was nothing in there. Well, we are at a moment in our culture right now. By the way, we did the Mesita. You're looking at a Mesita man right here. 
We have been through a lot the last 18 months as a culture, have we not? And I think a lot of us are like, oh, great. Now we're going to get back to normal. Things are going to be great. Everything's going to be fine. But what if the place that we are heading into is not going to be easy, a bit harder than the current moments that we've been through? As one of my mentors said to me, John, what if this is the easiest it will ever be to follow Jesus in Western culture again? What's your plan for the Mesita of Western culture? Hot, hard, boring, dry, resistance, opposition. What if this is the easiest it will ever be right now to follow Jesus again? Is your heart, your spirit, your mind prepared for that? Well, Jesus addresses this in the Gospel of Matthew. I know you've been in a series in the Gospel of Matthew. Last week, Matthew 23. And in Matthew 24, Jesus addresses such a moment. This is what he says. Verse 9. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. And you will be hated by your nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. Many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And in this passage, Jesus wants his followers to know, he wants his disciples to know, hey, I hope you've enjoyed the glory of my ministry, and I hope you enjoy the resurrection and everything that comes with it. But even resurrection culture is not going to be enough to keep your love alive in the midst of a culture that hates me. So you've got to pay attention. You've got to guard your heart. You've got to cultivate courage, and you've got to cultivate compassion, because if you don't, the love of most will grow cold. And I spent a lot of time meditating on this passage as we increasingly watch Christian leaders fail. And we watch people deconstruct their faith and we watch the love of many grow cold. And I don't say that with self-righteousness, like how could they? It makes me ask a different question. How do I not do that? Because Jesus seems to indicate more and more will do that. How do I, with the fear of God and the love of God, remain one of these few people where Jesus says that they will love me faithfully to the end? So this is not just condemnation for those who can't. This is a question. How do we be those who do? What do we need to be warned against? What do we need to be aware of? And as I've thought through this, I've thought deeply about the great temptations we face in a moment like this. And I think they fall into two categories. The first one is, and they're both framed around failures. The first one is a failure of nerve, which I know you have talked about before as a church. This comes from Friedman. And his idea of having a non-anxious presence. Failure of nerve, though, says that I do not have the internal fortitude to handle the disorientation and anxiety of the people around me. Therefore, for a sake of personal comfort, I will collapse back into their acceptance and anxiety. And the second one is a failure of heart, which means I may be able to keep going, but I stop doing it with love and compassion. And so as a result, I have Christian faithfulness, but without Christian love, which ultimately is noise. So one author puts it like this. Todd Bolsinger says, failure of nerve is caving to the pressure of the anxiety of the group to return to the status quo. It's a loss of courage to further the mission 
And failure of heart is the emotional cutoff that occurs when the leader's discouragement lends them to, leads them to psychologically abandon their people and the charge that they have been given. As we head into this Messiah culture section, long, hard, faithful obedience to Jesus without affirmation, recognition, just a slog of faithfulness, how do we remain strong? Well, I think we have to figure out how to analyze where we tend to have a failure of nerve and where we tend to have a failure of heart. And that's what I want to do for you this morning because I think there's going to be moments and times where you may be doing good right now, but it's going to hit you what's happened to you. One of the things Tim Keller said in New York early on, he said, after 9-11, Christians had a huge heroic response because this is what Christians, Christians are born for crisis we know that we have an opportunity to love. We can use our social capital. We have an invisible network, a web of relationships of love across a whole city that can rally in a moment of crisis. And he said that heroic response was beautiful after 9-11. But two years later, those who didn't take care of their inner lives were those who burned out because they were just adrenaline their way through crisis and they didn't attend to the interior life that would enable them to thrive after the crisis. And I think there's going to be a lot of people who aren't really aware of what has happened inside of them. I mean, how many people have really processed the cultural anxiety of a global pandemic or really understood what racial injustice rearing its head in our culture right now and being fully exposed does to us? Or our ideology and Christian nationalism and obsession with politics, which, by the way, if you're not from America... There's like a funky thing happening right up in here. <laughs> and then as we move forward with all of these tensions, are we ready to walk the long, hard road, not just with adrenaline to get through, but to really examine that we don't fall into these temptations of failure of nerve and a failure of heart? Now, the beauty of the Scriptures is they give us multiple examples of failures of nerve so we can sort of learn how not to and know what those temptation points are. And they give us examples of failure of heart, how to avoid that. Because honestly, here's just my pastoral hope for you. My hope is not just in the next three months, the next six months, but in the next 10 years, the next 20 years, the next 30 years, as you enter into the kingdom of heaven, as you stand before Jesus and, and followers of Jesus from all over the world who are experiencing trauma and heartache and tribulation like you and I can't even comprehend, when we're walking around and they say, how did you follow Jesus faithfully in your part of the world in that secular location with all of its temptations? Did you remain faithful and make it through? And I don't want you to have sort of like the failure of the modern Masada shame where you're like, no, I was unfaithful. I caved in. I was not bold. I did not stand with Jesus. I want you to be able to walk in with a full heart and say, by the grace of Jesus, I was faithful to the end and I came into heaven with a soft heart of love for my Savior. So temptation number one is a failure of nerve. Failure of nerve. We cannot handle the rejection of the group when we try and faithfully follow Jesus. First example, we see this, and the first thing that's noted on this, we see in the life of Peter, the first Temptation and failure of nerve is when there's a shift in cultural dynamics in your life, a shift in momentum dynamics. And here's what I mean. You, you have to imagine how exciting it was for people to hear this announcement from Jesus' life. 
The kingdom of heaven is at hand. You're kidding. Yeah, Jesus is like, I'm the one. The kingdom's now. It's available. Repent. Draw near. It's breaking in. For them, you know what this meant? This was like a a king like David, a warrior poet who was going to come in and heal their hearts and deal with the Romans and judge them. And Jerusalem was going to be set up as the the, the center of the earth. And the Messiah was going to reign and he would be a king. And you've got to imagine how exciting it was to follow him. And then Jesus not only has skill and wisdom, he has supernatural power, feeding the 5,000, incredible Driving out demons, he's got authority. He's got authority over weather. Can raise the dead. And you're just thinking, I'm with him. I'm with this guy. And then you finally make it into the inner core. Not just the 70, the B team. Not just the 12, the A team. But the inner ring of the Messiah. You've got to just imagine what it was like to be proximate to glory. And he's just thinking to himself, I am going to rule and reign alongside this guy. And then Jesus starts saying some things that don't quite fit into the paradigm, but you dismiss it because of the signs and wonders. And then it begins to sort of preach about going to the cross and about suffering. And you're thinking, yeah, 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 but you can really get away with that because you've got power over nature. But then almost as in slow motion, all of the momentum shifts from the Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, to the same crowds chanting, crucify him, crucify him. And you go from being at the absolute center of a popular movement to being pushed out and hated by everybody. And he says to Jesus, Lord, if everybody else denies you, I won't ride or die, son of God. And Jesus is like, look, I appreciate it, but that's not what's going to happen. And so he goes from somebody who thinks he will be faithful to the end to the point at the time Jesus is arrested, where a teenage girl just comes up to him and says, you, you look familiar, you're with him. And he's like, never heard who? No, I'm just here to watch him be crucified and arrested. Then another person comes up to him and is like, aren't you with him? And he says, no, no. No, you got the accent. You're from the same region. Uh, coincidence. And then eventually, he calls down curses in the Greek. He doesn't just curse, he curses Jesus. I don't know the man. And then Jesus looks across. And you think about that. He did not have the internal fortitude to resist the shift in cultural momentum. He loved being at the center. But when the world turned against him, he just, it was, look, a teenage girl could talk him out of his confession by a fire when momentum shifted. And I often think how many of us, if we're not careful, this ends up being the dynamic of our life. We love being a part of things that are great. And honestly, being in this room feels pretty good, doesn't it? This is the basement crew. This is the faithful crew. It feels great to be in. There's people watching from all over the world and you're at the center of it and you love it. But what when the whole thing just goes south and it costs you to be a part of it and it feels like there's no benefit to be in it? This is the first temptation. It's momentum happens and momentum shifts and it's all against us instead of for us. Now that moment, if we're not careful, even though we swear allegiance, the smallest things could talk us out. An HR form, a relationship because you're really lonely and they're really supportive, but they're not a believer. The smallest things can come for us and talk us out of our confession when momentum is against us. And can I just say this? If this happened to Peter, do you think you're better than Peter? Personally discipled by the Lord Jesus Christ for years? 
witnessed his power and glory and majesty firsthand. And yet in his world, when he saw all of that, it still turned him away. That temptation, a shift in dynamics, can make us have a failure of nerve. Second one is around dominant personalities assaulting us. This can talk us out of our conviction and our nerves can fail. We see this in the ministry of Elijah. Elijah is probably the most famous prophet in the Old Testament. He's referenced the most in the New Testament uh, prophetically. And John the Baptist came in the spirit of Elijah. But Elijah is like his sort of peak moment, peak prophetic moment. It was the showdown with the prophets of Baal. You know the one I'm talking about? Strong, strong scene. And so he gathers the prophets of Baal. God sends him to sort of reclaim and call back the children of Israel in the midst of their compromise and unfaithfulness and his King Ahab and Jezebel. And uh, so he, there's this big showdown scene for those of you who aren't familiar. And he bit, there's two altars. Altar number one is an altar to the prophet Baal. And I say, the God who answers by fire, he is the Lord. And so the prophets of Baal, they get the, the altar set up. They have the sacrifices there. And they just start to pray. They're like, come on, Baal, let's go. Come on, Baal, let's go. Baal's not getting busy. And so they, they cry a little louder. And then Elijah starts in on the taunting. Maybe he's popped into the toilet for a moment so he can't hear your prayers. It's hard up in heaven, you know. Maybe he's taking a nap. Maybe he's having a little sleepy time, your God is. He's just mocking them. They cut themselves and they go louder and louder. And then his moment comes to declare the glory of Yahweh. And he's got this little way, he's like, rebuild the altar. And by the way, that's a whole talk, rebuild the altar. It's like rebuild the altar and then they put the sacrifice on it and he pours water on it and it's covered and then he prays a very, very short prayer and then fire comes down from heaven, consumes the altar. Everybody's in awe. They rally back to Yahweh. The prophets of Baal are killed. And at this moment, he's probably think he's just going to keep this going. Glory to God, this is a revival, old school. We have actual fire, not metaphorical fire. And it's come down and he's ready to go and then something happens. Jezebel gets word of what's happened and she says, what's happened to my prophets will happen to you by this time tomorrow. And he just flees and he runs away to the wilderness. And in the wilderness, he says this to the Lord, Lord, I have had enough. And he collapses in exhaustion. An angel has to wake him up. It's like, yo, have a little honey cake, just a bit of water, man. Just calm down, tend, tend to yourself. And he has to get another little nap. It's like double sleepy time for him. And then he just is absolutely paralyzed and overwhelmed. He goes from seeing fire fall from heaven to a woman saying, you're done. And he runs. This is extraordinary to me. Because it shows us the power of personalities in our lives to shut off our confession before God. It says if, if a prophet is seeing fire, signs, wonder, glory, power, and yet a woman can talk him out of it, it lets us know that there's people in our lives we grant authority to who can talk us out of our confession and paralyze us. And I bet if you were really honest right now, that if you could get a text in the middle of this sermon, it would shut you down. There's people in our lives, either from our past, our family of origin, maybe it's, it's former lovers or people that we've dated or whatever, and they can speak to us and they can say, you're done, and it can just cripple our spirits. And we are overwhelmed with failure. Sometimes these dominant personalities cause us to have a failure of nerve. Is there anybody in your life that you have granted disproportionate power to? 
who no matter what you've seen God do, no matter how true his word is, they still play a role in your life where with one announcement, they make you flee your faith. We have to be aware that this can happen. Third thing that can happen to cause a failure of nerve is moments of uncertainty. We don't know what to do and God's not working in our timing. And so as a result, we just make up our own gods because we cannot handle the dissonance of misdirection. And we see this most clearly in the Old Testament with the person of Aaron. I think this may be one of the greatest failures of nerve in all of recorded history, honestly. And I I don't want to, with arrogance, sort of judge Aaron because I don't know what I would do there with millions of people gathered around me in a moment of uncertainty. But his certainly was an absolute classic failure. So you know the context. The Exodus is the central event in the Old Testament of God's redemptive action. And you talk about signs and wonders. God judges the Egyptian gods. Moses comes in and there's just sign after sign after sign after sign. And eventually Pharaoh yields and he says, let them go. And out they go and they they hit the Red Sea and all of a sudden it's like there's going to be a disaster. And yet again, God makes a way through the sea and they're delivered. And on the other side, they're singing songs of deliverance. And they just, it's a straight up Old school Pentecostal praise party. You read those words that they have in there. And then God wants to cement this covenant with them. He wants them to know not just that they've been set free, but who they're in relationship with. So Moses goes up to get the fine details of what it means to be in covenant with Yahweh. But he takes a little bit longer than they like. And so now they find themselves with like some leader who's up in the clouds with the invisible God. And they're like, we appreciate that, but we got to get somewhere. We can't just wait here in uncertainty forever. So we need a God who's working more in our timetable and our schedule. And so they come to Aaron, who in a moment of weakness is like, what do you want me to do? Now, God had given them reparations. They took basically the wealth of Egypt on their way up to make out for 400 years of slavery. But instead of using those reparations to build a new culture, they used it for idolatry. And they say, make us a God. So he says, okay, take off your earrings. And they do all of this. And he fashions it in a fire. And then he brings it out in one of the most blasphemous moments. And he says, behold, your gods who brought you out of Egypt. And the people rise up to revelry. Moses comes down and he's, he's angry. He's like, what is that sound? And he realizes what is happening. And he breaks the tablets and he comes down. and He has a confrontation with Aaron. And Aaron's like, honestly, mate, I don't know. Like, you, I mean, pe- people needed some direction. You were taking a bit longer than we sort of liked. And uh, anyway, I don't even know, actually, I don't even quite know how this happened myself. Maybe this is like the 11th miracle. I don't, actually don't know here because I just threw this in and this came out. What a, what a failure of nerve. The people gathering around and saying, tell us what's next. Tell us what's next. What do we do? Where's God? Where's it going to move? And he couldn't just say, wait patiently for the Lord. If he's done all of this, will he not bring us into our inheritance? But they couldn't. And so he gives in in this moment of uncertainty. And I think there's a lot of us who feel that temptation right now, don't we? What's next? Is God working on our timetable? What's the future going to be like? What about my plans that were put on hold? What about the dreams of my heart? What do I do? And if we're not careful, we will find a way to come up with a version of God that will lead us into the future we want, but it just won't be the true God. 
failure of nerve, shift in momentum dynamics, dominant personalities, living with uncertainty, these can cause us to shrink back to receive peace from compromise rather than faithfulness to Jesus. Second kind of failure. These are failures of heart. This is when we might be faithful, but we do it without love. We just lose our hearts. Failures of heart happen. I think Moses is, is sadly one of the great failures of heart. Moses starts out and he just loves the people. Moses really has an extraordinary life when you study it. But he just, for some reason, because he was with the people, because he lowered himself from that place of privilege in the palace to identify with his people, he led them out. His heart was united with the people. And when God is angry in that same moment when Aaron is, he says, no, Lord, he acts as an intercessor. He stands between the anger of God and the rebellion of the people. And he says, my story is tied up with these people. But then he starts to get sick of the complaints and the criticism and the accusation and the disagreement and the pettiness and the lack of faith and the frustration of the children of Israel. And he gets to that moment where he is trying to provide, rely on God and provide water for them. And God says, speak to the rock, and he strikes the rock. And that moment costs him his destiny. From that moment on, he will only see it from a distance. He will not lead them in. And he gets angry in his heart towards the people. And so the tone in dialogue with them and God shifts. It's just from God, these are my people to like, these are your people, your problem. You know what they're like, God. And he stands rather than someone who has compassion for them as the person accusing them. And so rather than loving those who are part of his community, he gets frustrated with them and bitter towards them. And then you see him say this remarkable line. He says this, God was angry at me because of you. I've lost my destiny because of your complaints. And he moves from an intercessor to somebody with profound frustration. And as a result, God raises up Joshua and Joshua takes them in and his heart gives in. And honestly, let's, let's be honest, the Christians drive you crazy sometimes. On paper, Christian community is beautiful. And then you dump like real living human beings into the midst of it and it's like not as good. <laughs> it's easy to join CrossFit where you've all got the same practices and a shared vision, and you eat the same, and you, you see transformation like pretty quickly, so I'm told. <laughs> but then to be with people who don't change quickly, who don't have the same vision, this can be very hard. I'm always reminded of Bonhoeffer's wish dream injected into the Christian community where we love the idea of it more than the reality of it. I think a lot of you have experienced this perhaps, you know, how, how was Thanksgiving and Christmas? Good chats about politics? How did masks become a sign of cultural godliness? So many things cause us to just get frustrated with our brothers and sisters. This is a failure of heart. We no longer love the people we're called to love. Second kind of failure of heart is when Jesus doesn't give us what we want. And this is Judas's failure of heart. Judas, like Peter, saw the momentum dynamics. It was incredible to be a part of it. Judas was the one who looked after the, the money bag. And Judas is with Jesus the whole time. 
walking, 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 faithfully observing, seeing everything that happens. But when he realizes that the kingdom is not going to be an immediate kingdom, he doesn't just get frustrated and have a failure of nerve like Peter. He loses heart and love for Jesus and ultimately betrays him. And Jesus is not going to build the kind of kingdom that he wanted when he wanted it. And so he cashes in and sells Jesus out. And I think maybe his expectations were wrong. Maybe his motives were wrong. But Jesus himself was not enough. He was not worth it. This wasn't worth it. And I'm, I'm honestly amazed. I, I, one of the things I'm so grateful for about Jesus is how honest he is. Like in this passage, he says right here, all the nations will hate you because of me. And you're like, no, nah, he didn't really mean it, except Jesus said it. Jesus meant it. Don't, I trust him, not you. We've always tried to find ways for Jesus to not say what he actually said. Jesus says, look, if they hated me, they're going to hate you too. And he's wanting us to know that, that in the world you will have trouble. Becoming a follower of Jesus doesn't mean that you're exempt from the reality of the fall and resistance by evil culture. In fact, you're going to move from like a place of comfort where you're not really a problem to the, to the edge where you're going to experience direct resistance. And Judas gets to that point, he just says, I'm out. So many folks in our world today are like, you know what, I thought I'd be married by now and I'm not, so I'm done with Jesus. You know what, I lost my job in COVID and I tithed regularly and what about God promising and all of that stuff? And so I don't want to be loyal to Jesus. Or what about how I thought the church was some kind of community and they've aligned themselves with this cause or that cause and I can't identify with that. And so I am more at comfort with the world and its ideologies than I am with followers of Jesus I'm not down with this. This temptation can happen to us. And we have to remember Jesus isn't just our personal savior to give us what we want. He's the savior of the world inviting us into his story. We can have a failure of heart because Jesus isn't who we want him to be. And then lastly, the last kind of failure of heart is because honestly, the culture looks pretty good at times, doesn't it? Demas because he loved this world, has forsaken me. And sometimes the world just gets us. One of the things that we do a disservice to new Christians is we say that Jesus is going to make everything better. Man, I've, I've just found that my life, my life would be a lot easier without Jesus, to be honest. Real talk? It would be a lot easier without Jesus. And sometimes the world looks pretty good. We, we have a, a sex ethic where we say, trust me, this is the true way to live. And you look at all your friends sleeping around and it's like, that looks like another true way to live. And sometimes we say, you know, mammon's terrible, but our hearts are seduced by luxury. There's so many ways the world just says, come on, come on, come on. And there's times when it's hard, when we're exhausted, when the church is disappointing us, that God seems distant, when the world's just like, forget about it. The old classic, did God really say? And sometimes you're like, I'm not sure. Let's just spend a season finding out if he really said. Demas, because he loved this world, has forsaken me. Failure of nerve. Failure of heart. These are the temptations that you and I will walk into. When the momentum's against us. When dominant personalities accuse us. When we don't know what to do. When the people drive us crazy, when Jesus is disappointing, when the world looks good, what will we do? Failure of nerve and failure of heart. 
well, in thinking about how to deal with this, how do I not give up? And how do I not give in? Like, what's going to keep me rooted? And the thing we have to ask is like, how did Jesus avoid these things? How did Jesus remain faithful? What can he tell us about this? Well, I think the key to dealing with these two issues is the idea of differentiation. And differentiation is, for the most part, just sort of like a psychological term. It's about, it's about a secure sense of self. It's the ability to stand apart without the need of affirmation or the guarantee of outcomes. So it means there's something happening within us that gives us the capacity to get through it without the need for fanfare and without the need for results. Now, whenever you talk about differentiation, I think it's important to just note that there's different ways to differentiate in the church in this moment. So it's possible to have sort of a, a selfish differentiation, which means I can separate myself from the problems of people and the challenges of the culture because I've got a personal agenda. And you just take your ambition that you had in the world and you patch it inside the church and you use the people of God to further your own kingdom. And so there's a way to be selfish about it where, yeah, you don't give in to the anxiety of the group and you try and be faithful because you want it all for you. And that pollutes Christian community. Paul warns against this in Philippians 2. We read against this in James chapter 3. But there's something worse than that that we've seen of late, which gives us tremendous pause, and that's psychopathic differentiation. And this is when people get in positions of power and they literally have no emotional connection with the people they're called to love and they do violence against them, coercion against them. And this sort of psychopathic differentiation where the Christian community exists merely as a commodity for my agenda. And I just don't care who I hurt or what they think. In this vision, there's no weaker brother or strong brother. There's just me. We don't want this. And I want to tell you, we have to be careful because there's a lot of people doing that right now as a coping mechanism trying to get through. What we need is godly differentiation. Godly differentiation is what we see in Jesus. Jesus was rooted. Jesus had tremendous courage and tremendous compassion and so he didn't need the affirmation of people, yet he still loved them unfailingly because of how rooted he was with his father. Godly differentiation. What are the keys to godly differentiation? The first one is a sense of rooted identity. Rooted identity. Now, Christians talk about identity, 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 identity. If there's a women's Bible study in the church, it's going to be an identity Bible study. If there's a men's Bible study, they're going to be completely confused about what identity actually is. The world talks about identity, identity politics, LGBTQ identity, political identity. The reason we're all talking about it is because we're looking for something to root ourselves in, to give us a stable sense of self. And cultural identities are fragile at best, whereas Foucault says they're performative. You've got to live up to them to maintain them. And then they're exhausting. What we want is that rooted identity. This is what Jesus had. And this is where you will be challenged. And this is why the deep work is really understanding what has happened to you when you became a Christian. In Matthew chapter 3, Jesus is affirmed by the Father. This is my beloved Son who I love and Him I'm well pleased. And then while His hair is still wet from the baptism, basically, He heads into the wilderness and Satan's first assault is, if you really are the Son of God, 
the first thing he goes after is his identity. Because if he can get Jesus to doubt who the Father says he is, then he'll give in to these temptations of efficiency. So this is one of those things where we have to learn to be rooted in who the Father says we are. When people say to me, like, what are some of the, the things you do in the morning? One of the weird things is I do is I do biblical affirmations about who I am. Now, these are not like Tony Robbins affirmations, you know what I mean? These are not like Joel Osteen affirmations. These are like straight up in him I am. Wanted, chosen, loved, forgiven, seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. In him I have victory over sin, Satan, death, and hell because I'm united with God. I got to keep telling myself who I am because I'm amazed how quickly the second I get onto a street in New York City, that thing will be confronted. So it's amazing how often Jesus would retreat to the Father. And in almost every encounter when we get a glimpse, think about this, in almost every encounter when we get a glimpse of what Jesus is doing in private, there is an affirmation where the Father speaks out. And He says, this is my beloved Son, listen to Him. We need to get that as the truest part of who we are. And we have to do our identity resistance. You remember identity resistance from James Clear's book? It's a smoker who's trying to quit and someone offers them a smoke. Do you, want, do you want to smoke, mate? Oh, I'm trying to quit. I shouldn't. As opposed to, do you want to smoke, mate? No, nah, I'm not a smoker. I'm good. Every day, the biggest struggle in a person's life, a certain kind of person's life, is to walk past a bank without robbing it. Now, I, I, I've never, ever once thought about robbing a bank. Do you want to know why? I'm not a bank robber. I'm not a bank robber. It's not who I am. It's not what I do. And so, so often, I was like, well, you know, like, I, you know, I know the world's good. Rather than like, I'm not worldly. I, I, I'm, it's identity resistance. And this is what Jesus did. It wasn't, I wish I could, but I can't. It's like, I don't want it because that's not who I am. Rooted identity. Secondly, we've got to have a sense of that upward call. That's the definition of who the audience is. We've got to realize that the only thing that really matters at the end of the day is that you're faithful to what God has called you to do. That's it. Jesus' life, let's just be honest, Jesus' life was not that spectacular in the history of Rome. There's not like a ton of extra biblical historical proofs that he was who he said he was. There's, there's enough to believe, but it's not like Jesus then moved after his resurrection and took on Caesar and got into the middle of the amphitheaters and said, behold, I'm back from the dead. Repent. I'm Lord. Caesar's just faking. It's not what happened. But he was faithful to what the Father had for him. He entrusted the outcomes of his life with the call of faithfulness. And he had this Kaizen non-defensive spirit, which means he was just committed to just receiving feedback, receiving feedback without being threatened by feedback. And this is what the Japanese have. This is one of the distinctives that enabled them after World War II to rise back to a global power with production in particular it's because they just said, we will always get better without being defensive. So often Christians is defensive, defensive, defensive when there's a lot of truth to the criticism. And so our differentiation has to include feedback so we can follow Jesus more skillfully and faithfully. And then lastly, it's about a vision of faithfulness. Look, brothers and sisters, here's the truth. You're going to get a one-on-one -on -one with Jesus. And he's just going to say to you, look, I love you and I gave you these gifts. I gave you your personality. I put you with this time of history. And what I wanted from you was that you would live for me and love me 
and be faithful to my mission in the time of history I put you. Really, that's the only meeting that matters. And so Paul says, knowing the fear of the Lord and the, the guardrails of the fear of God and the love of God that keep us in that path with our eyes on Jesus. I think Jesus was consciously aware of returning to his Father. And we need that sense of eternity to govern what we do. So the, the failure of nerve is going to come at us. And the temptation to give our hearts away or to give in is going to come at us. But if we're differentiated like Jesus was, rooted in our identity in Him, taking feedback to get better, always saying we just want to be faithful to that day we stand before Jesus, we will be those people who are faithful to the end, like Jesus says. Now, I'm closing. The challenge today As you're hearing this, what if you're like, oh, you got me. Mr. or Mrs. Failure of Nerve right here. This is like my tendency. Like I hate conflict. I hate being the dissonance or at odds with other people. It's like I just don't know if I have what it takes. Like what do I do? What do you suggest? Well, I want to say this. It's not technique. It's not like, hey, try these three people interaction skills and that'll solve your, your issue. That's not how it works. What worked for Peter? You know what it was? It was the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And I want to say this. We are heading into a moment in our culture where theology and ideas will not be enough for faithfulness. You will need the power of God. The future of the church is a spirit-filled future. We've got to have that. You've got to have that in your life. You need to know the fruit of the Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit, the wisdom of the Spirit, the conviction of the Spirit, the power of the Spirit in your life as your operating system. Look what happened with Peter. Without the Holy Spirit and with willpower and culture dynamics, he's like, ride or die. And then he's challenged and he runs away, denies Jesus. But then when he gets filled with the Holy Spirit after Pentecost, he stands up and preaches to the same city filled with people. He's filled with boldness when the Spirit comes upon him. And I just want to plead with you, if you have any hesitancy about the ministry of the Holy Spirit in your life, ask God to break that off your life and just say, I receive you, Holy Spirit. Because you're going to need his power, not in church where everybody agrees with you. You're going to need it in the HR meetings. You're going to need it with your neighbors. You're going to need it in the real world. The power of God is not like an extra so services have a little bit of tingle in them or we resonate more potently. It exists for faithfulness to Jesus in the real world. So we're going to have to be people who are filled with the Holy Spirit's power. And so one of the prayers we have to pray, So this is one of my biggest prayers. The Holy Spirit, Jesus said, I'm going to send you a helper. I'm going to send you a helper. So I find myself multiple times a day going, help. Help. Helper. You're on. This is your role in the Trinity. This is your role in my life. Help me. And if I get in a hard minute meeting, I'm like, help me, Holy Spirit, to be faithful here. Help me, Holy Spirit, to have courage. When I'm tempted... Help me, Holy Spirit, to overcome this temptation. This is not who I am. Give me power for my identity to overcome these circumstances. And so if you're at that point, simple prayers, come Holy Spirit, help me, Holy Spirit, as a heart cry. Second one, if you're having a failure of heart, which just means like you're just, 
Your heart's giving in. You're sick of Christians. Driving you crazy and the world's looking pretty good. You're struggling with the season that you're in with Jesus. We need to pray not just for power, but we need to pray for love. To receive the Father's love. Paul has this extraordinary teaching in Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians 1 and 2 are some of the most profound chapters in all of Scripture. He's talking about, starts in eternity. I mean, my gosh, here's the counsel of God and here's the plan of salvation. And it's honestly like a John Coltrane eyes closed riff. It's like a meta sentence where the grammar's off and he can't get it right because it's flow. That's where it starts. Then chapter two is about our salvation and the community of God. And then chapter four, he starts hitting up Christian ethics and fires the fan. But in the middle, he says, I just got to stop. You want to know why? Because you need power to connect the theology with your ethics in the world. And he plays this great apostolic prayer. And the prayer is this. He's like, I got to pray that you'll be strengthened because your hearts aren't strong enough to receive the love of Christ. Let that sink in. I got to pray that your hearts will be stronger, your inner being will be stronger so you can contain more love. Because in the flesh, you're too weak to carry the beauty and wonder and height and depth and width of breath of the love that is directed towards you in Jesus. So he's like, let's just take a moment here and pray for strengthening to receive more capacity for love. And we can't love our enemies. We can't love other Christians who drive us crazy. We can't resist the affections of the world without more love from God. The Bible says in the book of Romans, the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. One of our teaching pastors used this analogy talking about Ephesians 3 once. And at the time, I thought it was so cheesy, but now I think about it almost every day of my life, which is good teaching. But she basically, you know, so I give her, like, as an act of, like, grace, I say, you can teach the Ephesians 3 prayer. I want to teach that thing so badly. She goes, thanks so much. And what does she do? She uses how the Grinch stole Christmas as her central analogy. I'm like, huh, huh, huh. There's a scene of the Grinch. It's a scene of the Grinch you would know, where he's just mean-spirited, big body, tiny heart. Then he has that scene where he goes, oh! Oh, 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 oh. And he's like, and his heart grows in his chest. And he's transformed from how the Grinch stole Christmas to basically how the Grinch put Christmas on. And she says, that's what we are like. Like God has to literally expand the capacity of our hearts. And so many of us, like we can be faithful to Jesus without love because our hearts are too small. So sometimes we have to simply say, Lord, would you just fill me with your love? I receive your love. I spent a lot of time, and it's kind of weird, but a lot of folks in church history have done it. Holy Spirit, I receive your power. I welcome your power into my life. Holy Spirit, I receive the love of Christ in my heart. I just drink it in. I just sit. I soak up your love. And receiving is passive and active. It's like you invite it, and then you surrender to it. And I think one of the most important things we're going to do in our future is we're going to receive the power of God and we're going to receive, receive the love of God. And these will be marks of our discipleship. Now, I just say this. Jesus never had a failure of nerve. Look at Jesus. His disciples come to him and they question him and he says, do you need to leave? It says, this was a, Jesus said a hard teaching 
And from this point on, many disciples turned away and followed him no longer. And he's not anxious or upset about that. He turns to his disciples and he's like, I know this is hard. You guys need to roll off too. And they're like, well, where are we going to go? I mean, these are the words of eternal life. But the calm and resolve Jesus has to see people walk away. Jesus with a rich young ruler, everyone's like, this guy's a winner. Get him on the board. Funding and influence. And Jesus probes his heart and he goes, there's an idol in there. There's a war here. He's going to sort that out. He's not ready and he sends him away. He's not intimidated. Yet here is Jesus on the cross and they're crucifying him. He says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. He loved his enemies faithfully to the end and other-centered orientation. And I just want to say this, that what we need at this time of history is followers of Jesus to have godly differentiation like Jesus. So in this moment, we can bear witness to Jesus when the world is falling apart. And so this isn't psychology, this isn't sociology, this really is formation because we need people at a time of history like this to learn to live like Jesus. So I just want to close with Hebrews 12. I want you to hear this verse spoken over you. It's very simple, but I want you to hear it in light of what we've talked about. And let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners. Why? So that you will not grow weary and not lose heart. And so, brothers and sisters, I just pray that you will hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful, and he'll be faithful to us. Mm -hmm.